The Thundermen are shown what could be. We learn about crimes, both past and future. We find out more about the boys, and they find out more about themselves. Much is revealed and makes things even less clear. We listen to episode 19 of Taz Graduation, so you know what that means. It's time for Talking Taz. Alright everyone, welcome back to Talking Taz, your weekly journey through the worlds of the Adventure Zone graduation. With you as always is me, your host and producer, PJ, and with me as always is my lovely co-host, Lauren. Hi everybody! Lauren, what did you think of this very fun episode? I adored this episode. I know I've said it before and I'm always going to say it. I love roleplay over like gameplay, so mm-hmm. this was an episode that was right up my alley and I loved it every second of it yeah this actually i feel like i mentioned our home games so much on this podcast but this reminded me a lot of our portal dreams yes those are some of my favorite don't get me wrong the dungeons are still fun and i enjoy playing in a big group with everybody but those one-on-one sessions with you with our portal memories are my favorite so this episode is all roleplay. It was released as a special episode for the max fun drive it is not a max fun you know drive exclusive episode Mm -mm. which uh, you know, those are exclusive to donors. This was one done up to raise up uh, donations. Yeah, we all get to benefit from it. But we sure do. I will say, anytime a Max Fun Drive comes around, if you guys have the money, donate. Even if it's not during a Max Fun Drive, you can always donate or upgrade a membership. I highly recommend you do. I am a Max Fun donor, and I really love all the exclusive content I get from it. It is one hundred percent worth it. Yeah, I unfortunately have not been able to donate. I always plan on it. This year in particular was rough. But yes. I will eventually become a donor. You got Lin-Manuel Miranda on Taz. Like, what else could you want? Literally nothing. That's literally everything <laughs> you'd ever want. But yeah, let's get into this episode. Yeah. Because it is a meaty one. Very. Uh, we start off with Argo waking up, not in his dorm room, but he instantly recognizes where he is. He's in the captain's quarters in the former whaling ship, or nar whaling ship, uh, mm-hmm. as we will uh, correct, mm-hmm. <laughs> turned privateer <laughs> vessel, Mariah. It's the Mariah. Mm-hmm. We and it's exactly, it yes, we learned about that earlier, which was, you know, the, the ship that his mother should be captained. Yeah. And it's exactly as he remembers it, except for three distinct differences. First, in the corner of the room are barrels overflowing with lemons, limes, oranges, and kumquats. <laughs> Gotta have those citrus. Gotta have that citrus. Second, hung over the desk is a portrait of his mother. We learned she had long auburn hair, a terrific smile, big green eyes, a tan complexion, and was healthy looking. Uh, You would intuit that she is very loving and open-hearted and has the type of face that people will immediately trust and open up to. Mm. Argo feels unnerved being back in his childhood home. It was a place of nurturing despite the hardship that comes from a life at sea. And he's sad. It brings up a lot of feelings for him, which I get. Yeah, absolutely. The third and most noticeable thing is that hung over the bed is a colossal painting from the perspective of someone standing on a dock and looking up at the Mariah. The captain stands at her bow, and the captain is Argo, but older, with a full beard speckled with gray, and there's a scar that runs from his forehead across his right eye and down his cheek, which is a damn fine look. I I was here for that look. Yeah, I'm here for older uh, Argo. Older, like... Grizzled Grizzled. Clearly been through some sh- some stuff, mm-hmm. Argo. The painting is titled "The Kraken Brings the Mariah to Port," which Ooh. I love. The Kraken as a name for yes. Argo, by the way. I wonder if that's like the name he picks up as like his hero or villain or sidekick name. Right. He has been so honed in on people's 
hero or villain name. And I mm-hmm. love that here in this, whatever it is, he has a name. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. Argo is amazed, finding a mirror and realizing that he looks like he does in the painting. He's stronger looking, tougher, and 12 to 15 years older since the last time he looked in a mirror. Argo laments losing his formative years and says he had been looking forward to that peak gadabout time. Uh, He then finds a set of orders on the desk with a royal seal that read, Argo, be a friend and do me a favor. Find the ship full of seditionists and do your thing. Yours, Fitzroy the Stormbringer. Wow, that's also quite a name. Uh, Yes, quite a name and also like seditionists i mean obviously we learn more as we go along but i was like seditionists the fitzroy the stormbringer like has fitzroy become like a king or something and obviously like we learn as we go along yeah but But that was my immediate thought same i was like seditionists a royal seal like what is going on here Mm -hmm. fitzroy's clearly become someone very important which is what he's always wanted but i was also like oh they still talk i know i was (laughs) like they're still friends this is what i wanted too Immediately, Argo is confused and upset that Fitz gave him another promotion, thinking this is a wacky dream. There's a knock on the door. He recognizes a voice as the voice of his first mate, Thomas, though he's not sure how he knows that. Thomas enters, salutes, and addresses Argo as admirable, as, as admirable, as <laughs> admiral, before saying they are closing in on the target. He goes on to say that Argo has given orders to be warned when they were near and wants to know if they should fly Argo's flag. Argo says he wants to oversee it himself and offers to go on deck with Thomas. On deck, the crew all stand at the ready, but it's not just Argo's crew that are waiting. There are three ships on either side flanking the Mariah. He gives the order to hoist the colors, a black background with a white squid breaking a ship in two. Now that he's on the deck, he notices the Mariah has been significantly upgraded. She has armor plating, reinforced mass, and weaponry is improved. All the cannons along the deck engraved with lightning down the barrels. So cool. This is a cool pirate ship. Heck yeah, it is. Argo can also see his quarry. The ship is dwarfed by the fleet. Small crew on the deck, terrified but still defiant. Thomas turns to Argo with a smile, saying the cannons are armed and he needs only gi- and he needs only give the word before the scene freezes. And I was like, oh no, are they war criminals? <laughs> right? I was like, who's the bad guy here? I don't understand. Is this like a Darth Vader situation where mm. they're now the Empire? Or is this, are they fighting? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly it's a vision as we have chaos enter the arena. He says, oh, the things that could be. Uh, Argo hears from behind him and turns, seeing a nine foot tall person walking towards him. Their skin opalescent, their eyes pure white. They're dressed in stunningly perfect pirate garb and they are mesmerizing. Argo asks if this person is a pirate ghost, and the stranger says they had hoped Fitzroy would have talked about them, but they are pleased to meet Argo. They are Chaos, and they introduce themselves as such. Dang. Argo confirms that Chaos is in charge of the vignette he's experiencing, and Chaos confirms this, saying they are hoping he's enjoying it, and to be in the presence of the Admiral Argonaut the Kraken Keen is incredible. That's a pretty cool name. I know we don't know what side he's on, but again, like hearing it all together, I was like, wow, Argo sounds super cool. Argo asks if this is a dream or a vision of the future, and Chaos says both are correct. This vision is showing a future that could be uh, with everything he wants. They say Argo has control of the Mariah, dominance of the seas, and his vengeance. When Argo asks about whom the vengeance is against, Chaos says it's his vengeance against the man who killed his mother, and that it was how he came to control the Mariah. Curious. Argo wants to know how Chaos is aware of his quest for vengeance, and Chaos explains that Argo has wanted to work with the Commodore, 
that his mother was murdered on the Mariah, and so they think that Chabri Keen was murdered by the Commodore. Oh my god! I was like, oh my god, what? I mean, I've always, we've talked a little bit about like how it's weird how much he is into the Commodore, but I didn't Mm -hmm. think it was because he was the one that killed his mom. Right? I just thought he was like a major fanboy or something. I thought he was like a total stan. Yes! But then... He killed his. He killed Argo's mom. Oh my god! That's Which crazy. makes so much sense, like why he's so obsessed with becoming a psychic because he wants to get close to him so he could be like, Mara- like Shabri says goodbye and like stab you killed him or my something. mother, prepared to die. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, fascinating reveal. Oh, so um, so good. And it also, I mean, this is going to be a weird revelation to have from this, but we're always obsessed with how we want them to all stay friends. Yeah, And the only reason that he was like, well, I'm not going to stay Fitzroy's sidekick was because he wanted to be Commodore sidekick. But if that's handled, they can still be friends. They could still be friends. Yeah, listen, that's just like whatever with the Commodore. And then you can go hang out with Fitzroy and the Fearbulk more. He asks Argo to stop him if he's wrong. Argo confirms that he is correct. Chaos continues to deduce that since Argo is so desperate to work for the Commodore, he must want to kill the Commodore, which they say could be achieved with their help. Shaken that Chaos knows so much when he's revealed his plan to no one, Argo wants to know how he came by the information to which he says he listens, and he just put everything together. They go on to say that they are not on opposite sides with Argo. Argo isn't doing this because he is bad or wants bad things. Chaos wants what Argo wants. This seems very sus to me. Ooh, hella. Yeah. I love Chaos. He's got phenomenal energy, and I love this, like, the slithery worm. Like, it's, you know... It's a trope that goes back throughout storytelling. I mean, it's the snake in the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. giving you your greatest desire at the cost of your humanity type of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Argo confesses that this has been his goal since he was 11 when the Commodore betrayed his mother and murdered her, that he's wanted nothing but revenge. It's why he went to school and was studying to be a sidekick. He pursued anything that would get him close enough to the Commodore to murder him. But he's not sure he's the same Genasi that he was when he started that quest. He's seen a bigger world and wonders if there are more important things he should do instead of just killing someone. Oh. Which is gross. Yeah, Argo. Cass wonders if Argo can keep other parents safe, gesturing to the boat he's pursuing, saying those rebels murdered city guards to escape, and one of the guards had a son that is the same age Argo was. I think that's hella unfair. <laughs> that's manipulative is what it is. That's what it is. Yes, I was like, okay, that's not cool. Yeah. They super double down, saying there are countless orphans that Argo, with his power and means, could help. Manipulative. Argo wants to know why Chaos is doing this and what purpose this vision is supposed to have, and Chaos says that this is what Argo could have if he and the Thundermen, specifically Fitzroy, relax, let loose, and enjoy themselves. Oh, God. (laughs) They aren't saying they have to go on rampages or perpetrate great evil, but to get what he wants and reach his full potential... Argo has to be willing to let loose. God. Oh, my God. (sighs) I don't Which just means, like, stop having morals. (laughs) Essentially, yes. Just, like, do whatever you want, and who cares about the consequences? Yeah. Argo asks about Master Fearbulg, and Chaos says that if all goes according to plan, he is where he wants to be and is also happy. Oh, my God. That's so sweet. (laughs) Yeah. I, I hope. I mean, I'm. Yeah. I want happiness for the Fearbulg. <laughs> I want happiness for all of them, but mm-hmm. the Fearbulg is just like so, he's so precious. Mm-hmm. He's so precious. Chaos says they can all reach their goals. Argo asks what they have to do to get there, and he enigmatically says, simply do what needs to be done. 
Argo wants to know why it matters to Chaos what he does with his life, and Chaos says he has influence on Fitzroy. The scene resumes, Thomas waiting for Argo, taking his spyglass. Argo looks to the ship and recognizes that these are the rebels he was sent to destroy. Argo instructs to have a shot go across their bow to give them a warning, but he hears himself say, sink them instead. Lightning erupts from the cannons, electricity and shrapnel ripping through the ship as the dream fades. Oh my god. Oh my god. Which also reminded me of, uh, I'm sure you remember, again, sorry to always reference our D&D campaigns, guys. I'm not sorry but, for it. Uh, when we were playing in Nyx, mm-hmm. early Nyx, when it was like at like peak Nyx, when we were all playing, like when we were all first playing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when we had the, the gluttony house. Yes. Oh my visions. God. That house was This insane. specifically reminds me of Andrea's vision, my vision. Mm-hmm. where I was destroying, like, an army. Oh, yeah, yeah, because you made one decision, but then something else completely different happened. Yeah. Oh, that was such a great time. Yeah, I think I, like, let loose, like, a six-level fireball or something on, like, an army or something. You did. And, like, a, a hail of meteors instead came raining down. Like, I already was, like, trying to play into the, like, all right, my character's turned bad. I'll play her bad. And it was, like, she's even worse than that. <laughs> yeah, no, it was... It was in- intense. Yeah. Those were not, they were kind of one-on-ones because the DM just looked at each of us and went through the visions, but we were all <laughs> present for them, mm-hmm. which at the time I was half sad and half excited about because I got to know what everyone saw. But then I am very bad at metagaming. It's just one of my many faults when it comes to D&D. But I had to try so hard to not remember all those details when I was again playing the game. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's hard not to metagame, but you, uh, the more you metagame, the less the game is fun. Exactly. Yeah. We cut to the fear bulg who wakes to the sound of nature all around him, not distant through his window like it is at school. He's in a chamber in a small series of caves lying on a bed of moss, with a small waterfall outside the mouth of the cave. There is life everywhere he looks, everything completely at peace. But all of that is nothing compared to the thing that makes his heart swell. Everywhere he looks, there are Fearbulgs, his clan. Three Fearbulgs exit his cave. The first, a female, slightly shorter than him, who smiles at him and squeezes his hand. The other two are young, around eight and six years old, rambunctious by Fearbulg standards. The female Fearbulg informs Master Fearbulg that she is taking the children gathering before they leave. And I was like, the Fearbulg has a wife and kids? He does. He has a family. I was into this. It's so sweet. Master Fearbulg catches his reflection in the stream and notices that he looks older. His hair is longer. His face is lined. And the brightness that was in his eyes is gone. Oh, Fearbulg. Justin says he's into this and that the Fearbulg is glad to be done with the school part of his life and he's forgetting the names of everyone he knew <laughs> already. <laughs> Fitzroy who? Argo who? That's such a typical, like, okay, I'm done with school. I'm going to forget everyone that I knew. Yeah. Well, we talked about this really early on in the podcast, mm-hmm. how, um, like, college friends are a very specific breed of friend Yeah. where you are so close during that time and it's... It's so common for it to never progress past college. Yeah, unfortunately, and it is. The second you're out of there, like the thing that kept you together is gone. Yeah, you don't realize that even though you were friends and you did know a lot about each other, it was school that kept you together. And obviously, we're not saying that that's the case for everyone and every friendship, but it's just a common thing that happens. It's a very if you were able thing. to find a true friend in that experience, 
Awesome for you and more power to you. I'm glad you guys are still friends. But for me specifically, I I know what they're doing because of social media, but we don't talk. All my friends from college. Yeah, kind of same. I still, I have a weird connection with it because I have friends from college. My friends were technically made through college, but like it was, I met them through college and then we kind of were able to actually become closer and like become friends through outside of college stuff. That's so that's cool. why I kind of don't count it because yeah. it's like we didn't become friends because of college. We became we met because of college, but we didn't become friends because of it. Oh, that's really sweet. And then I have like you guys who I met through work, but obviously we've proven at this point not being in work for you know nine months that the work wasn't the thing keeping us together. <laughs> exactly, it's kind of like how it was with you in school. Like work was how we met, but it's not why we're friends. Yeah, yeah. And the Fearbulg is beyond happy to be back. More than that, a deep, permanent part of himself had been missing, and that has been restored. As he relishes in these feelings, Master Fearbulg starts to recollect memories that aren't his, but are? You get that. <laughs> yes, I 100% get that. That is like the theme of our campaign. It is our most recent campaign. He remembers the Thunder King made his force a protected sanctuary. And I was like, Thunder King? Right? Like, there's all these cool names coming out of here. And I'm like, what has happened? Um, but he made it a protected sanctuary for the clan in exchange for them agreeing to take him back. And they agreed to forgive his crimes as long as he never betrayed the code again. Which wasn't hard at first. He pushed down everything he had learned about economics and accounting mm-hmm. and lived with his clan. And then he had children and saw them struggle in harsh winters and decided to repeat his greatest crime. He began to hoard food, which is this is where we finally learn why the Fearbulg was cast out. Yes. And it was was because he began to hoard food. Yes. Which can I just say, uh, that's that's economics. It is. It's basic economics. I am sure uh, Justin has had this plan forever, but it's so genius that he had the Fearbulg go into accounting yes because it's accounting is all about you know making sure that you have your numbers in the right places and that you're set up and accounted for Mm -hmm. and his crime was reallocating food so that he was secure Mm -hmm. which is food accounting like it is i love it genius 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 stuff in this show oh so so perfect so he began to hoard food just enough for his children to survive He shared his surplus with anyone who was going through tough times as long as it didn't threaten his family's well-being. Another Fearbulg approaches, one who was present on the night of his exile, returning a woven basket. He thanks Master Fearbulg for the berries, saying his son had been going hungry until Master Fearbulg found these berries and wants to know where they had been located. Master Fearbulg, afraid that anything he says will incriminate him again, hesitates and the scene freezes. Oh, God. (laughs) Chaos appears again. There it is. You could always just lie. A nine-foot-tall person moves towards him, and they're moving toward him with the unstoppable purpose of a landslide, which was ooh, oh, good, 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 good word in there. Such perfect imagery. They acknowledge the Fearbulg, saying it's a pleasure to meet him, and introduce themselves as Chaos, <sighs> saying they hoped Fitzroy would have said something about them, but they're glad to meet Master Fearbulg all the same. And actually, Chaos has a question they've been dying to know about the Master Fearbulg. After he was exiled for hoarding food, did he ever consider what he had done to be wrong? After all, he was correct. Food needs to be saved and resources are not always available. And the Fearbulgs didn't listen to him when he tried to explain this. So they really want to know if Master Fearbulg believes what he did was wrong. 
Oh, man. <sighs> Which is a phenomenal moral quandary to pose. Oh, yeah. No, like that is a really good question for Chaos to ask. Yeah. He says the code was not for him to judge, that it wasn't his choice to interpret. Chaos tries a different approach. The Fearbulg was using logical thinking, and they want to know if he ever felt like he was wrong. Master Fearbulg says no. Oh, money. You weren't. And I was like, ugh, you weren't. You weren't. You did the right thing. You did. Chaos agrees, saying we have to do the wrong things for the right reasons, and wants to know what Master Fearbulg thinks of this vision of what his life could be. Master Fearbulg says he is made whole, but he is distressful that it will last. Oh. And Chaos says that it could, that this isn't just a dream and a possible future that he and the Thundermen could build together. Master Fearbulk says he cannot change them or fix their hearts of the code. He used to think that he could change, but it runs too deep, which is, I mean, that's society for you. Yeah, it 100% it's So many is. things that are terrible about society just are so deeply ingrained that it's, it's almost impossible to convince people to change them. Yeah, you always have like a couple outliers like the Fearbulk where they have this idea like these ideas and this vision for what the world could be, but the majority of their people are complacent. Yes. And they, they get comfortable in their lives and what they've always had. And And people fear change. They do. They really fear change. So yeah, this is a really nice parallel to Mm -hmm. what we deal with every single day. But yeah. in a fear bulk society. Fear bulk's like, wear a mask. And other fear bulks are like, no, don't take away my rights. <laughs> Chaos reiterates that anything can be changed. Ever since he returned to his clan, his generosity and leadership have been noticed. And he could lead this clan and improve the lives of all of them. And even the lives of other fear bulk clans because he decides to change things. There's that manipulation again. Master Fearbog laughs, saying this appeal is not well targeted to his demographic. Oh, <laughs> Justin. It's such good role play. Justin freaking McElroy just hitting it out of the park every single time. He says the blood of the runt is the blood of the king, which is an old Fearbog phrase, and says that he doesn't want power or control. All he wants is to save berries for those who have none. And I was like, ugh, love you, Fearbog. Oh, my God. Chaos clarifies that they know the Fearbulg is not after power for power's sake. The Master Fearbulg has the opportunity to not only save berries, but the Fearbulg race. Whoa. Without change, the world will change around the Fearbulg, and they will soon find themselves without enough food to feed their young. The land they are on right now is only protected because of Fitzroy gaining power and protecting it. That power can give us the opportunity to protect those we love. Which is, again, just A-plus manipulation. Yes. Yes, 100%. I was so uncomfortable because I recognize it as manipulation, but also so intrigued because, like, what does chaos want? They're being very vague this entire time, just Mm -hmm. saying, like, let loose, do what you want to do. But, like, what is chaos really after, you know? Fitzroy. Fitzroy, yes. But, like, what is chaos's end goal? Because to me, it seems like chaos is using thundermen specifically fitzroy as a means to an end and i just don't know what that end but is But see, i think you're thinking about it the wrong way you're thinking about it with order in mind chaos only wants one thing and that is chaos that's true and he knows fitzroy let loose with power is chaos and that's what they want they just want the man and the way to get there is for fitzroy's friends to also be on board because they have direct influence over Fitzroy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I guess I am thinking about it logically, and chaos mm-hmm. isn't logic. 
No. Master Fearbog tells a story saying, A long time ago, the Fearbog were among giants, and they came to the woods, building a life, and where one fell, another took their place. The Fearbog are this coded, and if he begins to change it to suit himself, then what is he? Seeming reluctant, Chaos says that they had hoped to show Master Fearbog what could be. They wave their hand, and the scene changes. The ground is scorched, and the trees are gone. Any that remain are black husks. Bones litter the ground, and armies of devils, demons, and fiends move around the grounds. And I was like, "Ooh, step step up that step up that manipulation game, Chaos!" Right? Like with Argo, it began and ended with you can help other orphans not be orphans. But yeah. with the fear bulb, because he is so true and honest, and he's principled. Yeah. Yes, chaos like took it that extra mile, and I got mm-hmm. like chills. The cave behind him is full of fear bulb bones. Chaos warns that this is what might be if the Thundermen don't do what needs to be done. Ugh. They will lose the war, their homes, and Master Fearbulk will lose his clan. Oh my god. Deeply affected, Master Fearbulk says quietly that he does not wish to see this. That he is done seeing this, and he wants to know if this is an illusion. Chaos says this is only a possibility, and returns the scene to the tranquil one we'd left before. Oh man. Chaos says there's a lot at stake here, which Master Fearbulk already knows. He, Fitzroy, and Argo need to be willing to do what needs to be done, and can't get caught up in code, right or wrong. Chaos implores him to follow his gut and his heart, before wondering how Master Fearbulk will answer the other Fearbulk's question. Where did the berries come from? The scene resumes. The other Fearbulk waits for an answer, and Master Fearbulk admits to saving them through the year so that they will not starve. What he hears himself say instead is, I found a small bush north of the uneven path. The other Fearbulk nods and walks away, and as Master Fearbulk fades from the dream, he realizes as the future version of himself flied, he didn't even feel a hint of discomfort. He then hears a whispered voice say, practice makes perfect. Oh my god. Ooh, so good, so good, so good. This like... This isn't even like letting loose and just like whatever. This is the Fearbulg is going to have to learn how to lie. And like lie well. Yes, to the point where it doesn't even affect him physically anymore. Which I mean, I think that's something he's going to have to go through in general. Mm-hmm. Hopefully for the reasons he wants to, though. Because if they're going to be fighting a war, he can't be an easily accessible fountain of knowledge. Yeah, because then just anybody could learn anything at any time. As long as they have the fear bulb. I think training the fear bulb to lie is going to be important, but hopefully it's not corrupting as this has shown it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. The voice acting in this scene, like I love Travis's chaos. chaos. He plays chaos so, chaos so well, but then Justin too, you could tell he was getting really affected by like the really bad scene that chaos had to show him and when he had mm-hmm. to lie about like where he found the berries or when he told the truth, I guess he yeah. like did it so reluctantly. These two together were fire. Phenomenal. Yeah. Hello everyone. It's me, PJ, your long lost lovable loser here for the first time in a long time to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. We hope you're enjoying this episode. This is a heavy one with a lot of drama and intrigue and visions of what might be coming in the future, but who knows, we'll see. If you're confused as to why you're getting a surprise Saturday episode after such a long hiatus, boy are you in for a surprise this week. Listen to our very tiny mini-sode just released, titled We're Back, A Podcaster's Story. 
to find out what's up and where we've been. Keep up in general about what's up and where we've been by keeping up with us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at TalkinTaz. On Facebook, you can also find the official TalkinTaz group where you can interact with us as well as other friends of the podcast. Or go to our website, talkin-taz.pinecast.co for links to those socials as well as all of our episodes. If you're enjoying the show, tell your friends about it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help. No major notes for this episode, but I do once again implore you to check out our return minisode. It is only about five minutes long, so you can have a clear idea of what's to come on the podcast. Spoiler alert, we're marathoning episodes this week to catch up, but there's more to it than that, so tune in. Last month, unfortunately, we left you with a question about Hegelmiss's choice, and we actually generated a ton of discussion with people falling on all ends of the spectrum. This week, for our return question, let's tackle a heavier topic related to this week's episode. If you were offered your dream future, whatever that means for you, would you be willing to lose a part of yourself, as in maybe your morality or your freedom, to make that future a reality? Why or why not? I'm excited to hear from you all on this one. Now, back to the podcast. We come upon our last vision. Fitzroy's half-trance ends as he is looking up at the canopy of his four-post bed admiring the gold bed curtains, which are interesting because he's pretty sure they're real gold woven in them and because he doesn't remember falling asleep in a four-post canopy bed. (laughs) He raises his head from the most comfortable pillow and looks around, and I was like, what kind of pillow do you think he finds comfortable? Do you think he's like, he's like like a goose feather pillow kind of guy, or is he like a silk pillow kind of guy? I think he is a a down pillow for sure. He has some sort of feathers in there. And then I do 100% think that he has like silk sheets and silk pillowcases. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, Griffin wants to know if Fitzroy's sleep number is correct. And Travis says it's dead on. Uh, yep. We know which point. <laughs> after, ex- yep, after expressing his excitement, Griffin tests Travis to see if he knows Fitzroy's sleep number. And it's, say it with me. 69. 69. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Nice, 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 nice. <laughs> the room is luscious. Any one piece of furniture worth more money than Fitzroy's ever had. But he doesn't recognize anything, even though the decorating and furnishing choices are exactly the ones he would make if he was given the means and options. When Griffin wonders if Fitzroy has been kidnapped, Travis points out that it feels real, even though it's unfamiliar and he's not bound in any way, so he probably hasn't been kidnapped. That's a pretty Also, if you've been kidnapped to like your dream home, let that let that slide. <laughs> exactly. Like have I been kidnapped? You know what? It doesn't matter because You've been kidnapped, you've been sold to one direction. Is that a th- is that a thing? Oh my god, Lauren, society. <laughs> we live in a society. No, um it's like this uh Wattpad fan fiction. Um, and it's about a girl being sold to One Direction. It's like a whole thing. It was written by some teenager. Right, of course. Like early teenager, of yeah. course, as they all are. Uh-huh. It's like a big thing on the internet. You've been kidnapped by One Direction. Well, you're not kidnapped. You were sold to them by your so- mother. Oh, right. Because your mom needs money and One Direction's yeah. looking for... I haven't read it, but I've seen all the memes. Especially like when uh, around the election... There was like Destiel had become like all the Destiel stuff. Yes, and everything I saw all else. of those. Yeah, yeah. There was one where it was like me having this, like me having uh, seeing all the Destiel news, me seeing the Sherlock season, uh, the Sherlock season news, me being transported back to like 2012 Tumblr, and then they have a knock on their door, and it's their mom being like, 
sweetheart, I'm sorry, but we have to sell you. And then it's like the One Direction is all there. <laughs> and it was like, oh, no. Oh, no. I am very intrigued by this fan fiction. Like, why did One Direction want them? Uh, is God. You know what? Slavery? This is like a real, real, real talk. If like, if anyone is like super invested in this conversation, tweet at us. And we'll do like a bonus episode where I read this fan fiction to Lauren. <gasps> oh my God. I might just tweet at you. <laughs> I kind of want this to happen. <laughs> oh God. Griffin then asks, with the nature of Fitzroy's dreams, which we've covered before, is he getting that particular flavor here? And Travis says it's definitely not a dream. Fitzroy calls out for someone, thanking the air for the dope bed, but no one answers. So Fitzroy calls out louder, wondering if there's a wealthy bedtime benefactor at work, and the door slowly opens. An attendant enters, addressing Fitzroy as my liege, and wonders if he wants anything like breakfast or a drink. Deciding he wants to write out this dream, if if it is one, Fitzroy demands the attendant bring him eggy toast buttered exactly the way he likes, with the sweetest grapefruits and a brulee top, and daddy's gonna get crepes, and if his specifications aren't adhered to, heads will roll. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty par for the course. Yeah, no, none of this surprises me, yeah. <laughs> the attendant mentions that this is Fitzroy's standard breakfast, and I was like, of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> and now calls him sire, and leaves. Wow. Fitzroy seems to understand that whatever he is experiencing isn't good and he's worried about it, but he's also interested to see how things go and he's just going to ride this fantasy out for as long as he can. I mean, I would too. Travis has him roll a perception check and Griffin refuses, saying that he doesn't want to see anything wrong and just wants to be in the moment. (laughs) He goes on to say that if this is the last scene that Fitzroy is ever in and he retires to this fragment of his mind and he doesn't participate for the rest of the adventure, he's totally cool with that. It's a very Fitzroy answer. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Travis then points out that he should probably then roll to look around the room so he could take it all in, which, like, good job making him still roll that check. Exactly. I was like, good job, Trav. You stick to those DM guns. Based on the roll, he sees a letter sitting on his desk that says, Fitz, my darling, just another reminder that my skeletal armies are yours to command just as soon as you accept my proposal. A girl doesn't like to be kept waiting. Yours, the Lich Queen, RM. You know what I'm going to say here. Yeah, you know what? You've earned it. Go ahead. Say it. I love this. I look, I will say to your credit, this confirms that he maybe doesn't feel the same way for her. That yes, this interaction supports my my theory and my understanding of Fitzroy. But I will say at least she likes him, which you fought me on before too. I have agreed that she likes him. I have I have been on the side of Fitzroy is a strong independent woman who don't need no man. But I understand why you ship it. I just don't ship it. However, this does give a lot of support to your ship saying, yeah, she's she's super into him to the point that she even proposed. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a ship. It is a thing. Fitzroy starts to write a letter back saying he was not keyed into this vibe between them. And I was like, how can you not be keyed into this vibe? Well, I mean, I took it as he's asexual um oh that's interesting i this is gonna be okay i had never read that but this is a hard thing for me mm -hmm. because as a not asexual person i don't mean this in any any negative way it's my brain like i like this is not a sexual erasure in any respect it's more like my brain 
is plugged into that type of vibe. So I'm like, yes, that is what people are thinking. And then sometimes my dear, dear friends are asexual and they'll say things like, oh no, I've never had that vibe before. And I'm like, oh yes, I forget. Not everyone has problems like me. <laughs> no, I don't think it. I don't think it's problems because I am asexual and we have talked about this before outside of the podcast. So like, you know that like I am like Fitzroy in this instance where I am just like not keyed into that stuff at all. So yeah, it's so interesting. It's so fascinating to me because like we're going to do like a quick five second TMI and then we're going to forget we ever did it. I'm <laughs> hypersexual. Like I'm a hypersexual person. So like I go to the other extreme <laughs> <laughs> where it's all the time. And so like we are completely on a completely opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of like the way we view things in media and relationships. Yes. And where you are always keyed into it and always seeing it, I am very oblivious to all of it and just don't think about it. So I think people go through life not keyed into it, same as me. But then you say something, I'm like, oh, no, we're different. We see the world in a completely different (laughs) way. But honestly, when you say that, I, I do see him as possibly asexual. Yeah. I don't I don't imagine he's aromantic, I will specifically say. I don't I just don't think Rainier is the person he feels connected to. If anything, I kind of am starting to get the vibe and nothing is spurning this on. I could see Fitzroy being asexual and maybe gay. Oh, I could see that. Yeah, no, I could see that for sure. And not just because he's like not into Rainier. Just that's kind of like a vibe I'm starting to get from him and Honestly, I would love to see him find love if that's something he wants. But if he's also aromantic, I support him regardless. Yeah, I support him no matter what. I could potentially see him as aromantic just because he's never, in the times we have seen him, gone for something that is approaching a romantic relationship. But once he gets some version of what he wants, maybe that is something Mm -hmm. he'll want to pursue. Yeah. Uh, he opens the window to see a luscious garden, though Travis does change it to say that it's verdant because Travis just keeps calling everything luscious. To Griffin's like major disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. And is in a tower of a castle. He then finds a closet full of cloaks, any one of them being a possible cover cloak for Boy Cloaks magazine. Damn. Or Boy Cloaks quarterly. They need to make up their mind. <laughs> yeah, I don't know which one it is. <laughs> Griffin asks if these are big boy cloaks because he did grow eight inches and Travis could. Oh my God, I forgot he grew eight inches. He did. Oh my God, I completely forgot. I. <laughs> oh my God. That happened in the middle of a massive fight. I can't. I, I completely can't. forgot. I did too. When we were, when I was listening to the episode, I had that realization and I already forgot it to the point that while I'm reading this, I was like, oh my God, he grew eight inches. <laughs> Same. Oh, God. And while he's going through the closet, he sees his reflection in the mirror on the back of the closet door, and his body is lean with well-defined muscle, and he's 10 to 15 years older as everyone else has been, Mm -hmm. looking like he's gone through the fires of hell and came out like forged steel, which, damn, just Travis is coming through with these, like, metaphors and this wordplay. So good. It's beautiful. His bare chest, which Griffin gets very excited about, is covered (laughs) in about 15 brands like the one that saved his life in the centaur camp. And he wonders why so many people would want to curse him. Well. Uh, yeah. (laughs) I get it. I, yeah, I do too. But the most noticeable difference is ripples of lightning crackling right below his skin on his arms, just waiting to be released. So cool. I mean, because, I mean, realistically at this point, if he's stuck with it, he's probably like level 18, 20. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's like 
has to be so up there. So he's got to be ultra powerful. Ultra powerful, ultra cut. <laughs> Just ripped, bro. Just <laughs> shredded. Rationalizing that this is a dream and he can do whatever he wants with no consequences, Fitzroy turns and casts a spell towards the bed. A bolt of powerful blue lightning shoots forth, obliterating it. Fitzroy demands to be brought another bed as someone knocks at the door, saying they have taken one of the insurgency strongholds and they have one of the leaders captive and is waiting judgment in the throne room. Fitzroy says he will fly over there with his flying powers because anything is possible when you use your imagination, <laughs> but he does not actually fly. He, no, he can't fly. Uh, sullen, Fitzroy walks to the throne room like a goddamn idiot, <laughs> according to Griffin. <laughs> But he does not dress, wanting everyone to see his incredible pecs, brands, and lightning skin. So I just imagine he's in, like, silk pajama bottoms. Oh, he is 100% in silk pajama bottoms. He enters the throne room naked from the waist up, and a herald's voice rings out, His Royal Highness, the Thunder King and Lightning Lord, Fitzroy Maplecourt, the Stormbringer. Wow. Wow. Which, so good. I did uh, not... Much better than Night in Absentia for the Realm of Good Castle. Yes. I didn't think his title could ever become more than it was, but it can. It just reminds it reminds me of the scene in A Knight's Tale, mm-hmm. which you've seen, yeah. I have. Seen, it's been a while, but I've seen it. Uh, when Chaucer is like writing down like all the superlatives for, <laughs> and he's like trying to come up with like the most complicated name. That's <laughs> yeah. No, that's the same. It also reminds me of uh, Dimension Twenty. One of the characters in A Crown of Candy is like super, uh, super loyal to the royal family. And he also keeps track and has like a giant sheet where he updates any superlatives they want in their title. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, I haven't listened to Crown of Candy yet, but that one is already my favorite character. <laughs> Sir Theobald Gumbald. I'm going to write that name down and keep an ear out for him. As guards and attendants bow as Fitzroy enters. He greets each person with small pleasantries and then asks the Herald to introduce him again because it was the single coolest run-out sentence he'd ever heard in his life. (laughs) He settles into his throne and takes in his prisoner, whose hands and feet are bound and chained to a ring in the floor and his shackles have him kneeling before Fitzroy. A guard reads his crimes. The prisoner spreads seditious material, undermining the Stormbringer's restoration efforts. He plotted with the rebels to assassinate the king and, above all else, led the raid on the village of Hunter's Rest where scores of the king's guards and their family were killed. The prisoner starts to speak up, saying he only did that after the gods slaughtered, but before he can finish, he is interrupted by the guards saying that nothing is left but the enacting of Fitzroy's justice, and he bows. Whoa, that's a lot to unpack. (laughs) Yeah. The scene freezes and he hears, Time to bring the thunder, wouldn't you say? From behind him, as chaos rears his head once again. Chaos looks different. Their features more angular. They move around the prisoner, everything about their fluid movements broadcasting threat. Ugh. Fitzroy wonders what this is, and Chaos says this is a dream of what the future could be if he plays his cards right. Fitzroy wonders if he's going to have to execute this poor gentleman, and Chaos very quickly corrects this is a murderer, which is a complicated question and a complicated situation. Exactly, yeah. Fitzroy says he's not supportive of corporeal punishment, and Chaos points out that he is the king of the majority of Nuwa and has been unifying her lands under his banner, and this monster seeks to undo that and re-enter the civil war that ravaged the world. When Fitzroy asks if he missed the civil war, Chaos says he won the civil war, the combatants being the rebels who refused to comply and honor Fitzroy's power. But the world is peaceful now, and the wars have ended. 
restoration has begun and it's better now than it ever has been unifying under Fitzroy's banner. And I was like, imperialism, imperialism. (laughs) It's not a good thing. Right. I had like tons of alarm bells going off in my head when I was like, okay, listen, Fitzroy, that's, you are you're, you're you are the great British nation, and this is the rest of the world, and the sun should set on a on a kingdom. It should absolutely set on a kingdom. Oh man, man, it's yeah, I'm scared. Uh, as much as he's enjoying the sound of all of this, Fitzroy mentions that it's unusual for chaos to be supportive of unity and peace. Chaos doesn't see why, saying they only oppose order. But there can be chaos and peace, which is what I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. He's not saying it here, but I think it's chaos is Fitzroy in power. They sure yes. seem to be supportive of other people telling Fitzroy how to use his powers and what for. And chaos says that no one tells the Stormbringer what to do at this point, And he's in charge. <laughs> the bed he destroyed on a whim is being replaced without a word or command from him. This is Fitzroy unrestricted and unrestrained, and it can be all his. Fitzroy asks what happened to his roommates. Chaos tells him that Argo has become a force on the seas, the admiral of his navy, and a privateer under his banner, stopping rebels and protecting trade routes. The Fearbog is in a sanctuary protected under Fitzroy's orders with his clan, and he's back with them now with his own family. Chaos says that they both have everything they've ever wanted because Fitzroy's power has allowed it. Fitzroy then asks about Grey, saying that he seems to be against this unifying future and has chaotic powers of his own. Chaos says Grey is short-sighted and only wants war. And that's what he'll get. Grey doesn't see the cycle of war and peace and chaos in order. He doesn't see how it moves. Chaos needs the war to bring Fitzroy to his full potential. With Chaos's help, Fitzroy will defeat Grey if he lets loose. Specifically, let Chaos loose. Damn. Fitzroy asks what that entails, and Chaos says he just needs to act without restriction. He's shown he has an aptitude for it, and Chaos is so proud of Fitzroy's actions at the Centaur camp because he took what he wanted and did what needed to be done. Yeah, the Centaur camp was, it was pretty chaotic. ripping off a man's arm. Oh my god, it was so intense. He'll grow more powerful and they could begin the cycle anew if he leans into this. Fitzroy says he'll think about it, and Chaos sighs. <laughs> Fitzroy says Chaos gives off arch nemesis vibes. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) He 100% does, yeah. Read him, sis. (laughs) Uh, But he's not sure to who. But there are certain things they are saying that make a lot of sense. And he'll sleep on it on a disappointing bed after his incredible future dream bed. (laughs) Chaos says that leaves them with one question. What is Fitzroy going to do with his prisoner? The prisoner unfreezes while the rest of the scene remains frozen. And Chaos stands to his right. The prisoner is shocked and terrified and looks to Fitzroy, waiting. Fitzroy asks if Chaos wants him to blow the prisoner up with lightning magic, and Chaos says, yes, of course, do what needs to be done. Fitzroy clarifies that he can do whatever he wants. He can, he is the Stormbringer, in fact. And then walks up to the prisoner, takes one of his hands, and slaps him on the back of the hand, going, no, (laughs) that, don't do it again. I was like, God damn it. Fitzroy's so phenomenal. I Yes. I loved this because kind of like with the Fearbolg and Argo, when Chaos tries to manipulate them, even Fitzroy, who I was most worried about because he's the most fluid when it comes to morality, he even was like, no, no, no. I'm, but you know what? I'm not like that. Fitzroy is so fluid when it comes to morality, but it's all greater good morality to him. He's chaotic good, you know? He is. In the essence that chaotic good is 
you don't really care about the rules. You care about what you think is right. Mm-hmm. And you'll do anything to get there. Mm-hmm. That's so true. So I knew he wouldn't. I don't think he'll ever go with the dark path. I think he'll always just go a dark route to get to the right destination. Oh, that's a really good way to put it. He goes on to say they're going to have cool parties with cupcakes, but he can't be a part of that if he commits crimes again. <laughs> then Fitzroy apologizes for hitting his hand. Chaos ain't having none of it and snaps their finger and the prisoner is electrocuted from the inside out. Oh, my God. The scene resumes as chaos disappears. Everyone's seeing what Fitzroy did to the prisoner and they applaud as the dream fades. Woof. And that's the final dream. That's it. At the end of the episode. That's it. That was a wild one. So wild. So much happened. So Argo gets to be in charge of the Navy, has mm-hmm. killed the Commodore, which we now learn killed his mom. Right. And, um, you know, has the Mariah and a fleet. Mm-hmm. The Fearbulg has his clan. We learned his crime. Yeah. Which was hoarding berries. You know, he's able to lie now. And Fitzroy is like the king of Nua with like insane lightning powers and like everything he could ever want. Yet it all felt so wrong. It did. I mean, initially I was really happy for all of them because they did get what they want. But I don't know if this is the ending that I want for them. It isn't. No. You know, I don't, I mean, especially I don't want them to all be like war criminals, especially. Especially. But even the fear book who wasn't like a war criminal, you could tell he wasn't where he wanted to be. Yeah. He was it, where he wanted to be, but it wasn't how he wanted to get there. Exactly. He does eventually want to return to his clan, and but not Even that more way. so. Yeah. And even more so, I would say it's fascinating because honestly, the Fearbulgs was the easiest one to theoretically convince someone of, mm-hmm. which is you literally do get everything you wanted. There are no strings attached. You don't have to be a war criminal. You don't have to be anything. But the thing that sucked the most was... Even when he had everything he wanted, he couldn't stop himself from doing the thing he did to lose it all in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, that was heartbreaking. So honestly, the Fearbulgs wasn't like Argo and Fitzroy had the like moral quandary of like, you have everything you want, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. The Fearbulg just had everything he wanted, but are you ready to give up what you think is right to get that? Yeah, and he did confess that he thought he was right in -hmm. what he did before yeah it was a fascinating it was (sighs) it's just a phenomenal overall episode loved every minute of it yes same absolutely but that's all we have for you guys this week not to say that it wasn't more than enough i mean yeah this is a pretty long episode we learned so much um i'm gonna commodore can catch these hands i'm gonna find him at a denny's parking lot i'm gonna beat him up for killing shabri i saw him at the denny's the other day and you were like nowhere well, you should have texted me. I would have been there. Oh, okay. I'll text you next time I see him. Yeah, yeah, Fight me, Commodore. Fight me, Chaos. You want to go... I mean, listen, I also want to go up against Chaos, but, like, I, I ain't ready for that. I'm always ready to throw these hands. <laughs> <laughs> but until someone's going to catch these hands, that's all we got for you guys this time. We hope you guys had a good time, but until next week, I've been PJ. I have been Lauren. And we'll see you next time when we are once again talking Taz. Uh-huh.